0: Just to mention, um, we've got some activities at the back. So um, kids, please feel free. Avail yourselves of all that's back there. Thank Thank you. Lord God, we come to you now. We just thank you for your servant, Graham. And Lord God, we thank you for your word. And Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you put the word into Graham's heart and speak it out of his mouth. Lord god we thank you that we are on your path your path is narrow but we are sticking close to you lord god and i just pray heavenly father holy spirit for your word to flow out of this service and to bless us and to bless graham and bless this nation praise your name thank you lord god amen 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 so Seven times in this passage, the word witness appears. Seven times over. That's in the original language. And it's not every time translated as witness, but it's seven times over. And so the theme of this passage is about being a witness. Being a witness. Witness. And the title of today's message is The Myth of Safe Christianity. The Myth of Safe Christianity. We're going to see that Mark in his gospel presents to us not just one trial, not just the trial of Jesus in these few verses, but also another trial. There were two trials. Did you catch it? Two trials are happening in these few verses. There's a trial of Jesus by the Sanhedrin, the highest Jewish authority of Jesus' day. And then there is a second trial that takes place. Not a trial that is given by the highest ruling authorities. Not a trial that has the ability to condemn anybody to death. But this trial... Was given by a lowly servant girl out in the courtyard. While Jesus was being questioned upstairs by the Sanhedrin, Peter, his closest friend, was undergoing his own trial. Trial by popular opinion. Two trials are taking place here in this passage. And Mark wants for us to compare and contrast the two trials. <clears throat> he wants us to see that Jesus remained faithful. Jesus remained faithful even though his life was at stake he remained faithful to the truth of who he was and of what he came to do whereas Peter even though the stakes were follower Peter failed. Peter was not able to remain a faithful witness. But I don't know if you remember when we first began the Gospel of Mark looking together at this book. Do you remember us talking about whose testimony the Gospel of Mark actually is? The Gospel of Mark, believe it or not, is actually the Apostle Peter's eyewitness testimony handed to Mark. And so isn't that amazing that Peter is telling us about his greatest failure? It's actually Peter's voice here in Scripture telling us about the moment of his failure. And I think in Peter's testimony, my opinion is that we're actually seeing the attitude of a true Christian we're seeing the attitude the viewpoint of a real follower of christ can you imagine documenting documenting for all time your greatest failure the time when you let the lord down most and you actually write that down commit it to paper and have it read to a church now i cringe at the thought. <clears throat> this is exactly what Peter did. He was happy to bring to remembrance the night that he let his Lord down. Why? So that he might have the opportunity to exalt his Lord as the only faithful witness. I think in that we're seeing some of what it means to be a Christian, it is to see your own failings but to look beyond them to the only one who truly succeeds in Christ Jesus. Amen. The Christian is not somebody who likes to boast about their own abilities. It's not somebody who likes to tell testimonies of how wonderful they are in and of themselves. It's somebody who is looking to point to Jesus, to point beyond their own shortcomings and failings. It's somebody that's ready to admit that they've sinned, they've fallen short, but that there is a Savior. That's the good news that we have to offer. That's what Peter's testimonies All about. So this passage is about bearing witness to the truth. It's about being a faithful witness. I want to say to you today that being a Christian, being a born again, Bible believing Christian, is about being a witness. That's what it is. It's to be a faithful witness to the truth of God's word. That's what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian isn't just about believing certain things in private. And I think that is something that when we're growing up, many of us think. Well, you know, I believe there's a God, therefore I am a Christian. Well, I believe these things that I've heard about Jesus, therefore you are a Christian. And though there is some merit in that, that we are called to believe in our hearts, aren't we, in Romans 10. We're called to believe these things, but they're never to remain private and cloistered in our own lives never to see the light of day a Christian is somebody who is a faithful witness meaning they bear witness to the truth think of it in a court scenario think of it in terms of a court now if a witness is brought to the witness box to testify about something they've seen This witness may know in their hearts the truth of what happened. They may be able to believe and even see in their mind's eye the thing that they're being called to testify about. Let's say that it's a crime. They can see the crime in their mind's eye. They believe that that crime took place. They believe they have an accurate remembrance of what happened, the details and who did what. But let's say when they stand up in the witness box and they're cross-examined, they change the story. They feel pressured. They feel frightened. They feel, wow, what consequences could come my way if I actually tell the truth? So they change the story. Is that person a faithful witness? Well, they believed all the right things, didn't they? They knew the truth. Doesn't that make them a faithful witness? No, it doesn't. They're actually guilty of perjury. They're lying in the witness box. A faithful witness is somebody who actually believes the right things, but when questioned about those things, will stand for what they believe and speak the truth. So a Christian is a faithful witness. And faithfulness is revealed by trial. Faithfulness, as we see in this passage, is revealed by trial trial it's when we're tested that we find out whether we really do believe what we think we believe and Peter perhaps one of the leading disciples though he believed the right things he'd already said you are the Christ he knew the truth but when he was put before the dock he Failed in this moment. Faithfulness is revealed by trial. And I think often that is the hardest part about being a Christian, isn't it? It's that all of us, in a sense, at one point in our Christian walk, have been brought before the trial of public opinion, haven't we? I remember many a late night conversation. At university, usually they would take place after a long night out when I was very tired. These conversations would seemingly always move towards issues of faith and belief and religion. And when I went to university, the most popular book at the time was Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. And my friends were absolutely convinced that they understood how Christianity came to be, how it was a myth, how it had been created to control the masses, and they were ready to beat me over the head with their new learned facts. And so each one of us in some way has been brought through a trial. Anybody recognize what I'm speaking about? You know what I mean, the trial of public opinion. Maybe it's not as intense as that but perhaps it's a colleague at work and you have to tell them that at weekend you're going to church maybe there's an awkward conversation that comes about but it's faithfulness that is actually revealed by trial faithfulness is revealed by trial private beliefs that do not pass the test of trial are cheap they're cheap anybody can believe something in private but if it never impacts the way that you speak the way that you act then that my friends is a cheap belief a Christian is more than somebody that believes things in private a Christian is a faithful witness and so that's why the title of this message is the myth of safe Christianity, it's a myth, there is no such thing as a Christianity that is safe, there's no form of following Jesus, there's no way that you can do it that avoids that trial, that avoids that pressure that comes when people question you about your belief, there's no way to avoid it, it's just part and parcel following Jesus the myth of safe Christianity but this is what Peter was looking for in Mark 14 Peter was looking for a safe way to follow Jesus a way to be faithful to Christ without really receiving what Christ received that's what he was looking for I think verse 54 is really interesting. If you look at this, verse 54, Peter followed him at a distance. Did you catch that? Peter followed him at a distance. I want to encourage you to, when you come into church, bring your Bibles with you. If it's a smartphone, that's great. And have some notes open as well. It's always helpful, isn't it, to check out what the preacher's saying to make sure he's not telling fibs. So verse 54, Peter followed him at a distance it's always a good thing to ask why isn't it why did mark include that detail and why was peter following jesus at a distance well i first of all i think peter deserves some credit don't you because all the disciples they fled didn't they in the garden of gethsemane they ran away but peter at least had the guts to turn around An attempt to see what was going on. So Peter deserves some level of credit. The other disciples, other than John, we don't know where they are. Peter followed at a distance. But why from a distance? Why did he leave that gap between him and his beloved Lord? I believe that Peter followed at a distance so that he was removed far enough from Jesus so that he would not be associated with him that's why Peter left that gap he did not want to be associated with Jesus who was condemned by the people and who was suffering at their hands Peter didn't want any of that heat he didn't want the trouble that came with following Jesus. So he left a safe distance. Many people are content to leave a safe distance between themselves and Christ. Whether that's ensuring a safe distance between themselves and the word of God. Perhaps we don't read it all too frequently. We don't really want to be associated with that. Or more often it's maintaining a safe distance between Christ and his church. If you're looking for ways in which the world ridicules Christ today then you're best looking at how the world speaks of the church. Very often the world has quite nice things to say about the historical figure Jesus. Oh he was a man of peace, he spoke about peace and love and charity, good man ask them to give their opinion on his church and you get an altogether different response and many believers are maintaining a distance between Christ but particularly Christ's church you don't want to admit to being a member of a church <laughs> for fear that you might receive the same ignominy and the same suffering that comes with being associated With Christ. So many people will create distance in that way. Others will try to create distance in their personal lives. Between how they live and how they know that God has called them to live. How many of you know how that feels? We've been through the valleys, haven't we? We've been through troughs in our Christian lives where we know that the way we're living... Isn't something that would be approved by scripture so what do we do we just begin to create a little bit of distance between our devotional time we don't necessarily want to read god's word as often and if we do we make sure we only read those verses that aren't going to make us feel bad about the way we live or maybe we like to extricate ourselves from our christian friends i know i've done this when i was at university I lived with a member of the Christian Union. And I didn't always behave well, I have to say, in my first year of uni. And what I would do was keep a low profile from those legalistic Christian Union bods in my first year. You know, if I didn't feel I'd lived up to the standard, I'd go AWOL for a while. And I know that is a real temptation for many of us, is to when we don't feel we've met the mark. We begin to withdraw, don't we? We create distance between ourselves and the Lord. A safe distance. Peter also, it tells us in verse 54, this is interesting. He was sitting with the guards and warming himself by the fire. So not only had he created this distance between himself and Jesus for fear of Suffering on Jesus' behalf. He didn't want the association. He's also sat there warming his hands with the same people who had just beaten his Lord with their hands. You catch that? He's sitting with the guards who just arrested his Lord in Gethsemane. He's warming his hands with them by the fire. Peter's keeping company with the enemies of Christ for comfort and that's another thing that happens when we create distance between ourselves and Jesus often where we go to is we go to comfort in the world we begin to form alliances with those maybe who have a very different attitude towards Christ they hate the word of God they they don't like Christianity they don't like the church and we begin to find comfort and safety in their presence but I want to say that to keep company, and I, mean, I don't mean that we should never hang out with non-Christians, quite the reverse. We should have many non-Christian friends, but to make that your fellowship in replacement of Christian fellowship, in replacement of being part of the body of Christ, to have fellowship with the world is to create distance between you and Christ. To be friends with the world, to agree with all of the world's feelings and attitudes, is to create distance and alienation between yourself and the Lord. The world is not going the same way, is it, as the church. And to have fellowship with the one and not the other is to create distance between ourselves. And I want to I ask the question today for you to explore, for you to ask the question of God yourselves, you know, is there that distance in your walk however big it doesn't necessarily have to be a big distance but is there that distance that you've created between you and the Lord are you maintaining a safe distance are you fearful of being associated with Christ if your friends and colleagues and family Were asked about your faith, would they have enough evidence to convict you (laughs) of being a Christian? Now, this trial that takes place, I'm talking about Jesus' trial by the Sanhedrin, that's the scribes, the Pharisees, the high priests, his trial, which appears in 55 to 59, this trial itself is illegal. You see, there were rules about how the Jews could actually operate. There were rules about how the Sanhedrin had to conduct a trial. And they broke numerous rules. They broke numerous rules. Trials were supposed to be held in the daytime. This one's held at night. Trials weren't supposed to take place on the eve of a festival. This one takes place on the eve of Passover. Trials weren't supposed to take place in a house. They had to take place at the hewn stone council there was a building where these trials were supposed to take place this trial took place in Caiaphas's house all trials were supposed to take place by first hearing a case for the defense that didn't happen did it in Jesus's case there was also a rule that said that the verdict of a trial couldn't be reached on the same day you had to wait 24 hours allow people to consider things and to cool off a little bit. That didn't happen here. And finally, they claimed that Jesus was blaspheming, didn't they? And they condemned him as being deserving of death. But even in the law of the Sanhedrin, simply claiming to be the Messiah didn't actually constitute blasphemy. Blasphemy meant to actually actively curse the name of God. And Jesus certainly did not do that. So there's just a crookedness all the way through this trial. It is like a kangaroo court. And what's interesting to me as well is that the Pharisees, sorry, the high priests actually go looking for people to testify against Jesus. They're trying to pin him to the wall, they're trying to get him convicted. But what's interesting is that it says that some stood up and they bore false witness against him. But in verse 56 it says their testimony did not agree. It did not agree. Inconsistency is the hallmark of a lie, isn't it? Have you ever noticed that when you tell a porky, you have to keep telling porkies to protect the porky that you told in the first place, don't you? Lies by nature are inconsistent. There's holes all over the place. Whereas when you tell the truth, the truth is just somehow so simple, isn't it? You don't have to keep creating more truth to bolster the truth you told in the first place. There's just a hallmark of consistency about truth. When our lives are built on truth, there's a simplicity to our lives, isn't there? There's a peace that comes with living in truth, with telling the truth. And when we tell lies, Guess what? We're living a life of inconsistency. Do you know how tiring it is to live an inconsistent life? Do you know how worn out it makes you feel to keep living a lie? This is why I believe partly that Jesus' burden was light. Is that he was a man of integrity. He told the truth. He lived the truth. There's no iniquitous way in him. And so he had this peace about him. You and I, brothers, were called to live in truth. Our testimony is to be true. To be consistent. And also, I think this is one of the best arguments for the truth of God's word. Is that there's no inconsistencies in this. The Bible is consistent within itself. For me, it's one of the most powerful arguments for the truth of God's word, is that it is consistent with itself. Although it's written by many different authors, human, humanly speaking, over hundreds of years, it actually speaks with one voice. You know, we could flip back to the Old Testament and read Isaiah 53. And it's literally like reading a personal profile of Jesus. But it was written 700 to 800 years before he was even born. The Bible has a consistency about it that is just so evident of truth. Finally, verse 60 and 65. The trial of Jesus reaches its climax. Caiaphas asks him, Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of the Blessed? Meaning, are you the Messiah? Christ, Messiah. And secondly, are you the Son of God? Tell us, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And there are many that like to claim in this day and age... That Jesus never pretended to be the Son of God. Jesus never claimed that he was anything special. He just claimed to be a prophetic voice. A voice crying out in the wilderness. A good teacher. He Never claimed to be anything more than a man. Have you heard that before? The Bible never teaches that Jesus was anything more than a man. If you've spent five minutes talking to a Muslim on the streets, this is what you get told. Show me where Jesus claimed to be anything more than just a man. Right here, in black and white, Jesus says these two words. I am. I am. In the Greek, ego, I me. Those are the same words, did you know, that God spoke from the burning bush in Exodus 3. I am. It's not insignificant. The priests knew what he was saying. They tore their clothes. I am. There it is in black and white. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. And Jesus goes on to say, I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now why did Jesus call himself the Son of Man here? Wouldn't it have been more fitting for him to say, and you will see the Son of the Blessed? Or you will see the Son of God? And again, there are many today that say, Jesus called himself the Son of Man. He never called himself the son of God. See, he's associating with being human, not with being God. Let me show you where that name comes from. When Jesus said, I am the son of man, he's talking about the same son of man in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 and 14, it says this, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Hear that? Like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. He was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed does that sound like a human to you? does that sound like anybody in this room could be that person? this is a divine figure this is the son of man this is the one who receives a kingdom that will never be destroyed and all peoples, nations and tribes will serve him this is Jesus this is the son of man That's what he's talking about. They began to spit on him at this point. They begin to cover his face and strike him and saying, prophesy who hit you. The mockery begins as we now run down towards his crucifixion. I'd like to remind you again of the verse found in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting 700 years before the events of that night those words were penned that's jesus in the old testament i hid not my face from disgrace and spitting that was the way of our lord his way is the way of suffering brothers and sisters the words that peter shared with us are encouraging here Do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes your way. Be not surprised as if something strange had happened to you when you suffer in this world. If the lot of our own Lord was to be struck and beaten and spat upon by those he came to save, why should we expect that our lot is going to be any different? in this world do not be surprised when you're visited by trials of various kinds in this world we are called to take up our cross aren't we and follow him peter's trial to finish with runs from verse 66 to 72 and and it takes place in the courtyard outside And actually, it's a young servant girl, isn't it, who comes up to him and says, You were also with the Nazarene. You were with Jesus. And Peter, warming his hands by the fire, denies it. He says, I neither know nor understand what you mean. He gaslights her. Doesn't he? I neither know nor understand what you mean. Did he know? Yes, he did. Neither know nor understand what you mean. And he moves away to the gateway. He tries to create distance between himself now and his accusers. And as he goes away into the gateway, the rooster crows the first time. But Peter, his interest isn't piqued at this point. The rooster crow doesn't stop him in his tracks. It doesn't shock him. The servant girl sees him and comes again. This time she begins to raise awareness around her. And that's often the thing that really begins to scare us, isn't it? Is when there's alarm. When there's a Ferrari created, that we feel we've created a Ferrari and a scene. As Brits, we don't like I don't like that. I hate that. You know, the feeling that I remember being at a party the once and a friend of mine just began to question me about my faith. And of course, inevitably, it moved to issues of morality, what's right and wrong in a human relationship, what I believe about that. Before I knew it, I had five people around me, and the fear begins to hit you, doesn't it? You're now, oh my gosh, I've created a scene. And Peter's feeling that. He's feeling the pressure now. There's people around him. He begins to try and shout and say, I am not, I, I deny I've got anything to do with this man. And after a while, the bystanders began to, accuse him and say, certainly you are. You're one of the Galileans. You were with him. At this point, the Bible says, Peter began to invoke a curse upon himself and to swear. Foul language is one of the most unfitting things in the mouth of a Christian, isn't it? Particularly taking the Lord's name in vain. because Why? Because God's name is holy, isn't it? God's name is holy and to co-opt his name and join it to a swear is a very unseemly thing for a Christian to do. God's name is to be kept holy. Peter begins to invoke a curse. Now probably more likely what he was doing was saying, you know, God curse me. If I'm not telling you the truth, I do not know this man. Probably something along those lines. I do not know this man of who you speak. He denies Christ a third time and then the rooster crowed a second time. It doesn't say that Peter wept immediately. Did you notice that? It doesn't say that immediately the rooster crowed and straight away... Peter fell and wept. In verse 72 it says, Immediately the rooster crowed a second time and Peter remembered. Peter thought about something. Peter contemplated the words that Jesus had said to him. He remembered that Jesus had said, Before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. After Peter had said, even if you go to death, I will follow you there. Jesus said, no, you won't. Before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And it was as Peter thought about Jesus' words that his conscience slayed him. And he began to feel the weight of guilt. And he broke down and he wept you know I think there's a reason why so many people in this world keep themselves so busy and so full of activity and entertainment on their phones we do it don't we we medicate constantly with videos and content and blogs and newspapers and sports and everything I think sometimes there's a reason for that that we don't understand fully I think for many the great fear is actually being left alone in silence with their own thoughts. It's often only when we afford ourselves silence in the presence of God. And we humbly submit to his word and what Jesus has said. That our conscience begins to speak more clearly. And although initially the feelings can be very painful, just like Peter's, he broke and he wept, I want you to see the beauty in it. I don't want you to feel that this is a negative word. If you're to get alone with God and sit under his word, there's a possibility, brothers and sisters, that you might feel bad for a moment. But that is not a bad thing. Why? There were two of Jesus' disciples that denied him. One was Peter, the other was Judas. One thought about Jesus' words and broke down and wept. The other did not. There's a health and a beauty in allowing God's word to weigh upon your conscience to bring yourself before God. Quieten yourself down, turn off the phone, turn off all distractions. Allow his presence to come and allow his word to just rest upon your conscience. There's a beauty in that. There's a power in that. That's what restores us back into that place of fellowship with God. Not that we ever broke it, but there are things in our lives that if we allow them to fester, we allow distance to be created between us and our Lord that can genuinely create a blockage in that relationship that needs to be reduced. It needs to be flushed out. So I'd like you to stand with me as we pray. And I would like to encourage you that if any of you here today feel that there has been a distance that's kind of opened up between you And Jesus in your walk. Just to allow a moment now of silence. We're going to just close our eyes. If you feel comfortable with that. Please do close your eyes. And let's just have a little moment of silence. And just allow God. By his spirit to come now and just rest upon you. And we just pray that if there is distance that's opened up that by his power and by his grace this morning that gap would be bridged how is it bridged? it's bridged at the cross again we look to the cross the place where our relationship with God is made perfect so just look to him right now look to his cross look to his love for you Through Jesus Christ and just allow his spirit to weigh upon you now.